From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Hairstyles can be deeply personal, especially for black women. Now there's a new concern. A study has found a health risk with hair relaxers. We found that among women who were frequent users of the hair straightening products, they had about over double the risk of uterine cancer. We've got more on that. Plus, the chairwoman of the FCC talks about a new bill that would give the commission more authority to regulate the cost of prison phone calls. And the lead singer of the indie pop band Easy Life talks about their new album. It's Sunday, October 23rd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian attacks on his country's energy infrastructure will not break Ukraine's determination to resist. His comments and his nightly address to the nation came after a wave of Russian airstrikes this weekend, leaving around one and a half million households without power. Here's Zelensky heard through a BBC interpreter. Russian propagandists are lying when they say that this terror against our infrastructure and people can somehow slow down the active actions of our military or cause any difficulty for our defense. Ukrainians are united and they know for sure that Russia has no chance to win this war. Zelensky said work is ongoing to restore electricity supplies as soon as possible. Another Russian warplane has crashed. Officials in the Siberian city of Irkutsk says both pilots were killed, but there were no other casualties when the Su-30 fighter jet crashed into a two-story building housing two families. Last week, a fighter plane crashed into an apartment block, killing at least 15 people. China's Xi Jinping has clinched a third term as head of the ruling Communist Party. As the twice-a-decade party Congress wrapped up in Beijing this weekend, Xi's dominance over the party and the nation became clear. Here's NPR's John Ruich reporting. Xi Jinping managed to pull off something that no Chinese leader in recent decades has done. He stacked the leadership entirely with allies. The six other members of the Politburo Standing Committee, China's most powerful decision-making body, have all worked closely with Xi and are seen as loyalists. Perhaps the most stunning of the new additions is the installment of Shanghai party boss Li Qiang in the number two spot. Li presided over the poorly planned two-month lockdown of Shanghai in the spring, and many thought his career was doomed. Now he appears in line to become premier and preside over the world's second biggest economy. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. Turnout for early voting in Georgia is on pace with the 2020 presidential election. More than half a million people so far in the battleground state. From member station WABE, Alex Helmick reports. There are two big races here. One is a rematch for governor between incumbent Republican Brian Kemp and Democrat Stacey Abrams who lost in 2018 by 55,000 votes. The other is for U.S. Senate, where Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock is battling Republican Herschel Walker. Polling for both show very tight races. Millions of dollars have poured into the campaign. So, too, have visits from celebrities and political heavyweights, especially Democrats who've drawn visits from Oprah Winfrey and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Former President Barack Obama is also set to stump in Atlanta in the coming days. For NPR News, I'm Alex Helmick in Atlanta. And this is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The YMCA in Barnstable did not follow appropriate rules before several children became sick while swimming in its pool. That's according to an independent investigation into the October 7th incident that sent seven children to the hospital. Investigators say a combination of cleaning chemicals became toxic because they were not properly diluted before being added to the pool. Boston College police are reminding students to take precautions after a masked man was caught on camera trying to break into some off-campus residences. Police say earlier this month, the suspect tried breaking into two different homes in the Kirkwood Road area in Brighton. They're reminding students to lock their doors and windows and to call BC police about any suspicious activity. More details are emerging about a small plane crash in Keene, New Hampshire, Friday night. Officials now say two people were on board the plane that crashed into the garage of a multifamily home. Both people died. No one on the ground was hurt. Officials say eight people were displaced. The head of the Charles Regatta wraps up today, and the Ukrainian national team will be on the water. Andrei Ivanchuk is head coach of the Simmons University and Riverside Boat Club women's team. He's also a former member of the Ukrainian national team and coordinated its appearance at the regatta. He says Ukraine's participation gives people back home a short respite from the war and says the rowers are looking at this as an opportunity to do something new. They never had that experience to race against best American colleges on the homeland, you know, on the river, on very famous and prestige regatta. And they are, like, taken as a big privilege to race on this regatta. Even Shook says on their flight to Boston, the team members received an ovation from their fellow passengers. It is 53 degrees in Boston, some rain mainly late in the day, highs today in the upper 50s. Rain tonight, a chance of thunderstorms, and then tomorrow some showers likely with a chance of thunderstorms and highs in the low 60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thanks for joining us this morning. Britain's Conservative Party is once again looking for a new prime minister and wants to name him or her by the end of this week. And as you might have heard, not imagined, Boris Johnson could make a bid to retake the position mere months after he was forced out. The latest bit of political chaos comes after the woman who replaced Johnson, Liz Truss, resigned last week. She'd been prime minister for just 45 days. It all boiled down to an economic plan that caused global investors to panic and rattled parliament. Amazing today how many MPs I came across who were looking at their phones and looking at graph lines. And they were the graph lines that showed you the pound sliding against the dollar, the graph lines that showed you the cost of government borrowing going up. That was Gary Gibbon, political editor of Channel 4 News, when the U.K. market melted down last month. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith walks us through what happened to Truss, her plan, and the British economy. The British economy is struggling with a lot of the same things we're struggling with here in the U.S., rising inflation and a slowing economy. Liz Truss ran on a platform of turning all of this around with tax cuts. I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes 
and grow our economy. Truss's plan? Cut taxes to keep the economy moving and also increase government spending to help people deal with rising prices. Sumia Keynes is the Britain economics editor at The Economist. She says Truss did not back down when she got into office. She went even further than what she'd promised on the campaign. There was a cut to the, the top rate of income tax. And then there were briefings saying that the government might go even further and announce even more tax cuts. Oh, right? Wow. So, yeah, they were doubling down. They were really going for it. The thing was, there was not really a plan for how to pay for any of it. And then Truss also failed to submit her plan to this independent budget office, which usually weighs in on government economic policy. And that sort of added to the bad vibes. A lot of financial analysts and economists started feeling some bad vibes, too. Economist William Gale is the director of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. What about the situation in the UK? Um, <laughs> why are you laughing? Well, they announced, they, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just, it's such a bad idea in their circumstances. Both the tax cuts and the spending trust proposed would tend to make inflation worse because both are pushing money out to people and businesses. And when they get money, people tend to buy more stuff and that increasing demand can push prices up. That is not what you want when you are trying to fight inflation. The market responded so negatively so fast. Sumia Keynes of The Economist says she was worried about Truss's plan. So my immediate reaction was that this was bad, but not ruinous. Then things started to go really weird. Something was wrong. International investors started yanking money out of the UK. The country's borrowing costs went through the roof. The Bank of England had to jump in and take emergency measures. This was really shocking. The UK is one of the biggest, wealthiest economies on the planet. What was happening was something that usually only happens in countries that are in terrible economic crisis, in danger of total collapse. There was a, a definite, you know, financial crisis style event happening, and that really added to this sense that something was really broken. Inflation can wreck an economy if it spirals out of control. And inflation is higher in the UK than it is in the US. To bring inflation down, generally, government spending has to drop. And taxes have to at least hold steady. Those can be brutal policies for governments to put in place at a time when the world seems on the brink of recession and people are struggling to pay their bills. But Sumia Kane says the trust saga makes it clear that global investors are not feeling sympathetic. And so the question is, can the next prime minister get those painful changes through? You know, it's looking very, very uncertain. And you you live in London, right? Yes, I do. I do. I don't know. how. What are things like there? Things are fairly normal. I think lettuce sales will have risen. <laughs> no. Over the past week, Keynes's colleague at The Economist first speculated that Liz Truss's time in office would be shorter than the shelf life of lettuce. The analogy took off, came the social media firestorm. Sadly, he was correct. And I may or may not have bought a lettuce in his honor. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. California is making calls from prison free. It's the second state to do so after Connecticut. But elsewhere in the U.S., incarcerated people and their families pay an average of $5 for a 30-minute phone call. Prison reform advocates have long argued these are predatory prices. 
All of this could change if a bill currently under consideration in the Senate becomes law. It has bipartisan support and would give the Federal Communications Commission the authority to regulate calls from prison, including how they are priced. Jessica Rosen Warsell is the chairwoman of the FCC, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So why are phone calls in so many jails and prisons so expensive? This is a complicated problem, but it is one we have got to solve. You know, you and I make a phone call. If we don't like a provider, we just choose someone else. Jail or prison develops an exclusive contract with one provider. So those who are incarcerated and their families are stuck with that one provider and the often really expensive rates they charge for phone calls. Do you think that jails and prisons intentionally make contracts that have like expensive rates for phone calls because they don't want prisoners to be able to easily access, you know, their family and people outside of prison? I can't say that I know what their motives are, but I can say this. When those who are in prison have regular contact with family and friends, it tends to reduce recidivism and we should be invested in that. And that's especially true in the United States, where we have roughly 5% of the world's population, but about a quarter of those who are in prison. There are 2.7 million kids in this country who have a parent in prison. We want to give them a fighting chance to be able to maintain a relationship. But, you know, for so many of these families, having a single call is a real strain on the household budget. I mean, for many of these families, these calls, just a handful of them, costs more than you and I pay for a monthly unlimited plan. I understand the FCC has tried in recent years to lower these costs, but hasn't been able to in a lot of cases. Why is that? That's right. It was about two decades ago that a grandmother, Martha Wright, filed a petition at the FCC saying the rates were just too high. She couldn't keep in touch with her grandson. And one of my former colleagues, Commissioner Mignon Clyburn, took a look at that petition and convinced the rest of the Federal Communications Commission we should do something about it. So the agency set to studying those rates and all of their complex elements and tried to lower them. But our handiwork was sent back to the FCC by the courts. Repeatedly, they said we didn't have enough information to lower those rates. And they also told us we didn't have authority to lower rates that were within the state or local. We only had the authority to lower rates that go between states. And so... We have jurisdictional issues, legal issues, and what has resulted is every year the FCC keeps on trying to find new ways to chip away at these rates because we know it's too costly, it's unjust, and we're going to have to find a way to do it, even if the courts keep throwing up these roadblocks. How would the Senate bill that's currently under consideration affect your agency's ability to lower the price of these calls? So there are two essential elements to that bill, which is named, by the way, for that grandmother who filed that first petition at the FCC. And Senator Duckworth introduced this bill with bipartisan support. And it does two really big things. The first is it gives the Federal Communications Commission authority over intrastate rates. That means the local calls, the within state calls that the court said we cannot oversee or regulate. And then it also has an eye to the future and recognizes that video visitation is going to be an increasing form of contact and make sure that the FCC has authority over that too. 
And so the language of the bill says it would require the FCC to ensure just and reasonable charges um, for communications in prisons and jails. Like, how would the FCC determine what is just and reasonable? Well, just and reasonable is one of those legal terms of art that the FCC has been dealing with since the Communications Act of 1934, which is when we got our start. And what it means is that those rates are fair and not discriminatory. And I think that's really important because the idea is no matter who you are or where you live in this country, whether you're incarcerated or not, you should be charged about the same to make some basic phone calls. That's FCC Chairwoman Jessica rosen Warsaw. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Who's better at folding laundry, you or a robot? Probably you, but not me. Robots do not have good track records with this, mainly because robots need rules. And laundry, well, I don't know about the hampers at your house, but it is pure chaos at mine. Five people, different shapes and sizes, and don't get me started on those missing socks. But an international group of researchers from UC Berkeley and the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany think they might have figured out how to make robots better, if not quicker, at folding clothes. They call it speed folding, and it involves two robot arms with pinchers. The robot scans the article of clothing, lifts it, flattens it, then makes several precise folds. They say their robot can fold an item of clothing in under two minutes with a 93% success rate. You go, Robbie. For the record, we timed it. Our editor can fold a pair of pants in under nine seconds with a 100% success rate. But put on some Stevie Wonder and she can do it in seven. <laughs> See the girl with the diamonds in her shoes. She walks around like she's got nothing to lose. Just You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Browdy. It's 918 and coming up on Weekend Edition. Sunday, you'll consider the new album from Easy Life. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. The L.A. Philharmonic performs Mahler's First Symphony and the Boston premiere of Gabriela Ortiz's Altar de Cuerda tonight at Symphony Hall. Learn more at CelebritySeries.org. Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. And the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kafar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. Coming up this Friday, October 28th at WBUR City Space, the Endless Thread podcast team dives into the weird, wild, scary world of bots. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Hurricane Rosalind made landfall early this morning along Mexico's Pacific coast as a powerful Category 3 storm. The National Hurricane Center is warning of life-threatening storm surge and damaging winds. The director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is recovering from COVID-19. The agency announced Rochelle Walensky's positive test this weekend, saying she is experiencing mild symptoms. And in Major League Baseball, the Philadelphia Phillies could clinch the National League pennant today after last night's win. The Phillies have a three games to one lead over the San Diego Padres. The Houston Astros will try to close out the American League series today. The Astros have won the first three games against the New York Yankees. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Haiti is in freefall. Gangs menace the country's port and its people. Cholera is spreading. And there are weekly protests calling for the resignation of the country's leader. NPR's Ada Peralta is in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, and joins us now. Hi, Ada. Hey, Aisha. Ada, things are so bad, the U.N. is considering international intervention. How did things get to this point? Yeah, I spoke to one of the country's 10 elected officials, and he described the situation as Haiti having collapsed. And essentially, this is uh, the fallout from the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. Since he was killed uh, last year, there was a power struggle in this country. A man who has been accused of playing a part in his assassination, Ariel Henry, is now the country's leader. And at the same time, the gang violence uh, that has been a problem for decades in Haiti has now spiraled completely out of control. Um, There are areas of Haiti where the fighting is so intense that thousands have had to flee their homes. And for more than five weeks now, the main fuel depot and the port have been blockaded by gangs, and the government has been unable to break it. So it makes sense then that the UN is taking calls for intervention seriously. What does Port-au-Prince feel like right now? This is uh, usually a bustling city. Traffic is notoriously bad here, and right now there's just very few cars on the roads. Most stores are closed, some hospitals are closed, the sidewalks, which are usually full of street vendors, are pretty much empty, um, and pretty much everywhere you go, um, there are these huge mountains of trash, and the trash trucks don't have any gas, so trash just keeps piling up. And you've been talking to people. What do they say? Yeah, that's the heartbreaking part. Um, One woman at a cholera treatment center we visited told me that Hope had died here in Haiti. Um, And then we went to a park just across the street from the main airport here. And I'd say there were probably about 2,000 people, and those were people who had to leave their home because of violence. We heard that some of their family members had been killed by gunfire. We heard that as new gangs moved into their neighborhoods, uh, they set houses on fire. People have made tents out of whatever plastic they've been able to find. And we saw so many kids suffering. They're sleeping out in the open. They don't have clean water. They don't have enough food. We met some with cholera. We met uh, Shalan Joseph. Uh, She was holding her two-year-old. And her baby was just skin and bones. He was crying. He looked lost. Um, Shalan says she's been trying desperately to breastfeed him. But nothing seems to be helping. She cannot really feed a baby. So he's not eating? Like, look. Feed him, 
he vomits the, the food. She hasn't taken him to the doctor. I don't have money. And, you know, maybe in the past she could have taken a motorcycle to a hospital, but right now there's no fuel. There are few motorcycles. It's expensive. It's impossible. And we didn't see a single person, not from the government, not from a charity. No one was at that park uh, trying to help people. And the thing I kept hearing on the streets of Port-au-Prince is that people here feel abandoned. That's NPR's Ada Peralta reporting from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Ada, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. may want to think twice before making your next hair-relaxing appointment at the salon. A new study has linked the chemicals that straighten hair to an increased risk of uterine cancer. Alexandra White leads the Environment and Cancer Epidemiology Group of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. She's also the lead author of the study. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. The link between hair dyes and straighteners and diseases like breast cancer have been documented in the past. So what did your study find this time? We were interested in expanding this research to consider uterine cancer. And uterine cancer is similar to breast and ovarian cancer in that we know that they are all hormonally mediated outcomes. We looked at over 33,000 women in the U.S. um, who are part of the sister study cohort. And we asked them about their use of hair products um, and how often they use them, including hair dyes, straighteners, perms. And so we followed these women um, at this point for almost 11 years. During that time, uh, we had about 378 uterine cancer cases that were diagnosed. And we found that among women who, when they enrolled in the study, told us that they were frequent users of the hair straightening products, meaning that they use them more than four times a year. They had about over double the risk of uterine cancer compared to women who did not say they'd use those products. What motivated you to conduct this study? You know, there's been a lot of concern about the chemicals that are in these products, um, in particular the straighteners, um, we know that certain formulations of straighteners can release formaldehyde when heated, and formaldehyde is an established carcinogen. And we know that these products are relatively commonly used, um, particularly for Black women. In our study, we found that 60% of those who reported using these products were Black women. If you are a Black woman right now, I mean, or any woman who would get your hair straightened, but as you said, it's, it's a lot of Black women. Yeah. Should you continue getting your hair relaxed? You know, that's a very personal decision. Um, so it's hard for me to you know, recommend that. There is this growing evidence base showing that hair straighteners are related to some adverse health outcomes. And I think that it's an important piece of knowledge for women to have when they make decisions. The increase in risk that we observed here is relatively small. So it's doubling. But what we saw is that for women who didn't use these products, their risk of uterine cancer was about 1.6%. So if they doubled, it went up to about 4%. So one thing that may be helpful um, for people who are trying to make this decision is that we did see that less frequent use um, was not as strongly related to risk. The one option may be just to reduce the frequency that you use these products if you're not ready to stop using them at all. 
How does it happen exactly? So these chemicals can be absorbed through the scalp, um, and particularly if you're having any abrasions or burns, it might make it easier for them to enter the bloodstream and then travel through your body. But formaldehyde in particular is released from the product when it's heated, um, and that's a gas. So that's something that you're inhaling. And so the rate of uterine cancer is on the rise lately um, with black women dying of the cancer more than white women. Mm -hmm. Could hair straighteners be a contributing factor to that? It's hard to say. We assessed this exposure in the early 2000s. That's when we enrolled women in the study and then we followed them over time. The challenge in trying to understand if one exposure is driving these larger trends we see in the population is difficult because we know with cancer that things that happened to us, you know, decades prior, even, you know, during our adolescence or childhood could be contributing to our risk now. Are there certain products that maybe have less harmful chemicals in them that you could look for? Or is it like if it's relaxing your hair, it's probably just dangerous? It's really challenging to know because studies have found that when they actually go try to measure the chemicals that are in a hair product, that there's not a lot of concordance with what the label says. Oh my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> that's one of the challenges um, in knowing what its products are safe, and it's really not fair to the consumer. Okay, well, how can authorities like the FDA help? Right. You know, I think the challenge is our study shows this correlation. It's not causation. And I think it often comes down to the fact that it's really hard to prove these things. Mm-hmm. They have, I guess, a high bar for where they, you know, deem something dangerous. And there are instances of, you know, California passing legislation to reduce chemicals and products or putting warning labels on products. And so the That might be one way to at least increase the ability of the consumer to know that there might be something hazardous in this product. Okay, I have a tough question for you. If you had a dear loved one and they were like they want to get their hair relaxed, what would you tell them? I would probably not have them do that. Yeah, yeah. Alexandra White is the head of the Environment and Cancer Epidemiology Group of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you, you know, for everyone's interest in this research. So now that we've heard what the science suggests about the risk of hair relaxers, maybe you've decided to stop using them. To help us figure out how to do that, we're joined now by April Kaganich. She's a hairstylist and texture expert in Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. First, like, what kind of conversations do you have with someone when they are saying they want to stop using relaxers? I imagine that it can get emotional. So can you talk about those conversations? The first thing I like to ask is, what is your goal? And that kind of helps me get an idea of how comfortable the client may be about taking a more aggressive approach. And when I say that, I mean big chops. And when I say big chop, that is referring to someone specifically cutting off their hair to get rid of any kind of chemical relaxer. Usually the big chop can be a little aggressive for some people because it is emotional. And so many people tie things into their hair as far as like trauma, history, you know, going to the salon is already an anxiety inducing experience for a lot of people. And in particular, black people, because you walk into spaces and you're not sure if someone 
is trained to do your hair or knows how to talk to you with a verbiage that's not going to make you feel a certain way. Can you talk to me about what it means to transition away from a relaxer? I've done that. I mean, for the past three years, stopping getting your hair relaxed doesn't change your hair overnight, which is why you talked about cutting off all your relaxed hair, which is really, I mean, you go into very, very, very short hair to chop off all your relaxed hair, right? It depends on how far along someone is in their journey as far as transitioning. So when you transition away from a laxer, that means you are going cold turkey. You are not going in for that retouch. (laughs) And you're learning how to embrace your hair in the state it's in. And a lot of times when people do have a lot of that difference where half of their head is natural and the other half isn't, that's when I'll start to talk about doing protective styles so you can feel more like cohesive, you know, instead of having feeling like you have two heads of hair. But I essentially make a plan and I teach them how to style their hair, what products to use and what's going to work best for them, because a two strand twist might not work for somebody. Maybe a braid out does or maybe they use a little bit of heat. They find like a curling wand and we can curl the ends of the hair to match as closely as possible to the hair they have or just showing different styles, you know, for people to wear instead of just wearing it out and natural and feeling more exposed that way. Are there things that you recommend that people avoid when they're making the transition? I tell people just to avoid as much heat as possible because when you do get a relaxer, what it's doing is it's there's these bonds in the hair called disulfide bonds and relaxers break those bonds. That bond gives your hair its integrity. That's why your hair is wavy, curly, coily. And so adding heat to hair that has broken bonds, aka damaged, you're damaging it even more. At your salon, you don't use relaxers. There are a lot of salons going in that direction. Why did you make that decision? That decision was a very personal decision to me. It all kind of just ties into my journey, like why I did hair and what I saw happening in salons as far as people being treated certain ways because of melanin, you know, or because of hair type. And to me, like knowing the history of black hair and just why people relax their hair in general and everyone has their own reasons but it was all for assimilation and for your hair to look like it's not you know air quotes kept and I want people to embrace themselves and understand that your hair doesn't have to be what you think is difficult I hate when people say that their hair is hard or difficult because it's not it just you haven't met the right stylist yet or you haven't found the right tool to care for your hair because we've been told the opposite for so long And just wear that crown proud. Like, I am a big believer in just taking up that space. Wear your hair. Don't shrink for anyone. Like, this is how we're meant to be in the world. April Kakenich is a hairstylist and texture expert. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. China unveiled its new leadership lineup on Sunday. Xi Jinping stays on as party chief for a third term, as expected. But there were also some surprises. NPR's John Ruich is in Beijing and joins us now. Hi, John. Good morning. A third term for Xi, like we said, that's not unexpected. But also, we had some things we didn't see coming. 
Yeah, I mean, at the actual closing ceremony of this week-long party congress, Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, was led out of the room in a very sort of unscripted way. Now, Hu Jintao is 79 years old. It may have been health-related, but it certainly uh, sparked a lot of conversation online. The big headline, as you say, is Xi Jinping getting another term. He's consolidated power in the party and in the military. He's eliminated rivals. The way it all went down this week just bolstered his power, and, and it surprised a lot of observers, frankly. You know, the Congress gave him and his agenda full-throated endorsement. The party constitution was amended to include some wording about Xi Jinping that really elevated his stature in the sort of pantheon of Chinese leaders, just building on a cult of personality that's been growing around him. The magnitude of Xi's authority, though, really became clear this weekend when it all wrapped up with some very significant personnel changes. Go into some detail. What, what are these personnel changes? I mean, well, in short, Xi Jinping basically ran the table. These party congresses are an opportunity to reshuffle the leadership. And in the top echelons of the party, they have historically sought a balance of power between factions or at least representation from different sort of patronage networks. Not this time, though. She clearly doesn't think those things matter anymore. Two of the country's most senior politicians were forced out. Uh, one was Premier Li Keqiang. The other was Wang Yang, who's a reform-minded uh, vice premier. You know, they were theoretically eligible to stay on because of their age. They're 67. But neither was considered to be a very close ally of Xi Jinping. And it seems that that was their downfall. The case of Wang Yang is particularly interesting. There were widespread rumors that he might become the next premier. He's out, and that job looks like it's likely to go to a man named Li Chang, who was promoted into the number two spot in the party hierarchy. Li Chang has been a close ally of Xi Jinping since the early 2000s, and here's what's really interesting about him. He's the party secretary of Shanghai, which had a very ugly COVID lockdown in April and May. And instead of being demoted or fired, he's getting this huge new job. I asked Tony Sage about this. He's an expert on Chinese politics at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. It clearly means that loyalty is more important than performance. One would have thought that given the mess with the lockdowns in Shanghai, the criticisms that came, that would have tarnished Li Chang's reputation. But clearly for Xi Jinping, the fact that he's a known trusted associate is far more important. And so what does all this imply? Like, does Xi Jinping face any constraints on his power now? At the elite levels, it certainly appears like he does not. Loyalty is key. Uh, the rest of the leadership lineup, like we said, are, are men who are allies and protégés of Xi Jinping. And there's nobody in the top ranks of the party who's obviously being groomed to succeed Xi, which is by design. Analysts say he's clearly likely to stay more than just this one extra term that he's been given. Look, Xi Jinping has a clear vision for how he wants to make China strong, influential, and a more equitable nation. That was all endorsed heavily by the Congress. He's now got people around him who are going to push those policies. The country faces huge challenges, though, particularly in economics and on the global stage. And it's really hard at this point to see who's left in the inner circle to stand up and offer criticism or even just an alternative viewpoint to, to the way Xi Jinping wants to run things. And that's worrying. That's NPR's John Ruich in Beijing. Thank you so much, John. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Police are reminding Boston College students to take precautions after a security camera showed a masked man trying to break into some off-campus residences. Police say earlier this month the suspect tried breaking into two different homes in the Kirkwood Road area in Brighton. They're reminding students to keep 
doors and windows locked. This week, the state legislature's Transportation Committee holds its third public hearing into safety failures at the MBTA. On Tuesday morning, lawmakers hear from former U.S. Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood. In 2019, LaHood was part of an independent panel that reported on safety issues at the T. It is 53 degrees in Boston, some rain mainly late in the day, highs today in the upper 50s. Tonight, some rain and a chance of thunderstorms, lows in the mid-50s. For Monday, some showers likely, a chance of thunderstorms, and tomorrow's highs in the low 60s. Tuesday, a slight chance of rain in the morning, then partly sunny and highs in the upper 60s. And it is voting season. 435 House seats, 35 Senate seats, 36 governorships, and countless local positions are up for a election. Keep listening to WBUR for the midterm updates you need. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival. It's back Saturday, October 29th in Copley Square. Celebrate the power of words. Details at bostonbookfest.org. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till. Starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Nothing is as it seems in Seven Empty Houses. That's the new collection of stories by author Samantha Schweblin. The seven short tales mostly begin as domestic scenes that are familiar enough. A mom and daughter out for a drive, a neighbor knocking on the door, a family rushing to the ER when a little kid drinks something they shouldn't. But the vignettes morph in surprising and, let's be real, creepy ways. Samantha Schweblin originally wrote the stories in Spanish and joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. The characters in these stories, they're doing some, they're, they're odd things. Like they sneak in and they rearrange other people's homes. Some people are dancing naked in their yard. It feels like you're kind of saying to us, Wait a second before you judge these people because you can't be too sure of your own perspective on things. <laughs> yes, okay. So I I think the stories in different ways are a kind of open question about, mm. uh, well, how dangerous it could be to keep living inside these kind of overstructured uh, boxes that we built about everything, you know, like uh, what love is, what family is, money. It's strange because uh, the moment that we really get attention of, of what, what is happening is the moment that we get silence. You know, that moment that everything suddenly is suspended and you, you think, what happened? Once those things get shaken up, exactly. that's when we... Exactly. The uncanny moment is a kind of key to open these boxes. 
A lot of the stories seem to involve clothing, like their clothes <laughs> thrown on the yard or characters in some state of undress. Was the intention there like a sense of vulnerability or transparency? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, there is also, I think, uh, in half of the stories are boxes where people put yes, things. Yes, that's on. why I was <laughs> bring up the boxes. You know, there's also something very personal there is that I wrote this book when I was moving from Buenos Aires to Berlin. I remember like in apartment, whenever I, 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 I see some object, I was thinking, should I keep it? <laughs> should I leave mm. it? <laughs> but also because, uh, well, the, the houses works also as a kind of boxes, very structured boxes mm. and in order to really do a kind of new movement in your life, all these characters, they have to go out, you know, to, to mm. leave these structures. We talked about kind of the unease that you can feel reading these stories, either from things that happened or from wondering like what's going to happen. Like, how do you craft that sort of unease mm. uh, for the audience? There's, there's small events that had happened in my life. Uh, so, for example, all the beginning of the story of Unlucky Man, when there is mm. a very little girl who drink uh, all of a sudden a whole cup of bleach. Yeah, she drank a, a little girl drank a cup of bleach. Yes. In that same story, uh, also, there is a girl stealing underwear from a store. Mm. These two mm -hmm. things are in my life. <laughs> they happened to you, but you it wasn't a but there wasn't a strange man no, with you when it you was did not. it, right? Okay. So many times uh I have a very, very specific feeling. I, I know exactly what kind of feelings I want to deliver to the reader. So um many times I, I can change everything in the story when I'm talking about the plot, no. But that last emotion. That's the thing that always came from my own life. I need to say this. I guess I wonder, how do you decide what to tell the audience and what not to tell the audience? Because you leave a lot unsaid. Whenever you write something as an author, there are some words that should go to the page and some words that should go to the reader's mind. And I love when I, I can feel this dance when I am the one who is reading. You know, I'm just about to think, oh, then it was she who did it. And I can feel in the, in the next words of the writer that he knew I was saying that words in my mind. Mm -hmm. Almost all of these stories um, have these profoundly complicated and sometimes dysfunctional relationships between kids and their parents or between spouses, did you build on some of these stories from your own relationships? <laughs> well, there's a little bit of reality in each of them. So, for example, <laughs> the first story, this is a story about uh, a girl who realized how strange it is that in the free time, what she does with her mother is to go out with the car to watch the other one's houses. I was doing that with my mom. <laughs> though they look at other houses yes. and they dream yes. about and giving what, opinions what and, and criticizing yes. what they would like what they don't like yeah but of course uh, fictions makes everything more i don't know intense so in this story they go into the houses they took things but the kind of feelings that you are dealing with are more or less the same i have so many many events in my life that leave me just in the you know, in the line where something even more interesting could happen. 
in real life, we don't usually cross that line. But crossing that line doesn't mean to go to the fantasy world. That means just to go to a world where things can happen. Like crossing that line, you can still have it rooted in reality. Yeah, but if you cross the line, you get new kind of vital information about yourself. Yeah. When you look at like the, the human connections in this book, a lot of them are fragile, they're fraught, but there's this tenderness there too. Of course, of course. You know, there is a, a saying from David Lynch that I love. He used to say that every piece of art should only be saying one thing, this word is very strange. <laughs> and I love that. It's so simple and it's so true. But at the same time, I think that strangeness could be very, very hard to deal with. If you really touch it, it's so frightening. So it, it's nice to have a kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> tenderness. Author Samantha Schweblin, her new collection of stories is Seven Empty Houses. They were translated by Megan McDowell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Aisha. words butterboards it's the latest food craze that's right boards not with cheese and meat no with butter spread all over plus bread crackers maybe some veggies and folks this idea started years before it took off on tiktok later today on all things considered the man behind the butterboard cookbook author joshua mcfadden he's got other ideas for your holiday parties too Tune in by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Life's a Beach. That was the title of indie pop band Easy Life's debut album, which was released last year. Now they're back with a new album, Maybe in Another Life. Growing pains. Growing pains. Easy Life hails from England, and its sophomore album is wistful, catchy, and in some ways, a departure from the band's typically sunny vibe and offers a melancholy meditation on popular culture today. Murray Matravers is the lead singer of the group and joins us now from Preston in North England. Welcome. Hello, Aisha. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to talk to you. Like, the, the album title is Maybe in Another Life. Like, in another life, that, that's a phrase people usually use when they're trying to say they wish something about their lives were different. Like, what were you hoping for with that title? This album was like, I did like a real deep dive into, uh, you know, my own personal life and a lot of things that I in the past have just tried to forget about are just things that I couldn't deal with at the time and now I'm slightly older and had a little bit more time to reflect I started to confront them and the whole album just deals with the idea of possibility and regret really. Are there any decisions that you feel like you regret? Of course oh my god there's so many I address like it's interesting because as a writer, I've always been very explicit about what it is I'm talking about. You know, I, I talk about 
objects and situations very candidly. On this album, it was a little bit more existential, a little bit more meta, and I didn't exactly say this is the exact situation that I'm talking about, and I'm going to make that very obvious, but it's an album about growing up. Oh, dear Miss Holloway, you're still on my mind. I'll reminisce about us sometimes. You, start you sing a lot about romantic relationships on this album. That's where a lot of times people will have a lot of regrets. And, and this really comes across in your song, Dear Miss Holloway. Is there a literal Miss Holloway or no? That, that, that's so creepy, so no. She's a, she's a make-believe <laughs> character of my imagination based on the idea of falling in love with your teacher. An unattainable romance, and we've all been there, you know. I think it's just something that happens when you're like an adolescent teenager, you know. You're kind of discovering all these crazy feelings for the first time. Cause we're forever near misses, those a couple of kisses. You were never my missus, but we came kind of close. I've had plenty of You know, at its core, it was just quite a funny thing to write about, but that's not to say that the song's like a complete joke, because I think it deals with the idea of like unrequainted love in any situation. I said it in like yeah. a high school scenario, but I think in general the song is actually quite melancholy. Obviously, you don't want to date your teacher. Let's let's put that out there. Don't date your teacher. But like in places where it's someone who you actually could be with, do you think that this album is more about accepting fate or taking more ownership of your action and going after it? I think it's all about growth and like trying to work on myself as a as a human being and become a better person. And like you move with dignity and grace and all those things and that can be really hard, you know, in, in a modern world. Like it's very easy to upset people. In another song called OTT, we encounter something, it seems like a happy scene, but there's a, a deeper struggle playing out. OTT, over the top, right? That's what it means. And so it's the theme of excess. It comes from actually just being witness to a lot of really devastating like addiction problems and not that I'm suffering from myself, but lots of close friends and things like that. It's devastating, you know, and I, I see it all the time. And all these people, they have stories and, and reasons why they got to those situations. And it's just... Uh, Easy Life has always taken serious subject matters like that and framed them in a way that feels optimistic or feels kind of, dare I even say, joyful. That's what I find really interesting about pop music in general, because most songs, lots of the uplifting songs, if you just read the lyrics, they're actually just... They have sadness in them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It has this strange boundary where it, it sort of belongs in both a happy and a sad, sad world. When you're looking at this sound, there's kind of like a 90s vibe, some, you know, some harmonizations that are kind of sound like a little bit of doo-wop. It's almost like you hear a little Drake, you hear a little, you know, a little hip-hop, a little this or that. Like, why, how do you feel about it? 
finding the sonic palette of an album is like my favorite part of making the record. That for me is just like just the best thing. And like I've produced like a lot of this album myself. And we've always used like sampled drums and loads of synths. And that's kind of been our thing. And I just wanted to make a slight departure from that and start to use like actual acoustic instruments. I took the the those organic recordings and just smashed them, like distorted them, saturated them, like beyond recognition from what they started. Then you see me go hard like a black king Kong. Ooh, the boy can't go wrong. Not a hair at a place, not a foot at a line. I keep it up all night long. We're blowing up your radar, charging up your pacemaker. By now I'm pay later. You earning that paper. I was struck by your song Moral Support, which has these explicit words of affirmation. Like, well, where do you find moral support, like, in your world today? I mean, I'm so glad we're talking about this song because this was, uh, you know, I think this is probably my favorite song on the album. I got your love, I got your moral support. Um, yeah, the chords are like a salsa kind of bossa nova type thing. Being, I was in LA, I was away from home for a, a long time. That was a really, to be honest with you, and as lame as it sounds, that's kind of like a love song to my girlfriend who was back at home, who I, I was missing at the time. And But I get a lot of support from her. I have, you know, also a lot of great friends and like an amazing family. So I think I was just kind of shouting out everyone that had got me to this place. So when the sun is shining down upon your face Don't feel out of place That's where you belong Murray Matravers, frontman of the English band Easy Life, thank you so much for joining us. Good to talk to you, man. Into cyberspace This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Raska. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. It's 53 degrees in Boston with some rain, mainly late in the day. Today's highs in the upper 50s. Some rain tonight with a chance of thunderstorms. And then for Monday, some showers likely, a chance of thunderstorms. Tomorrow's highs in the low 60s. Tuesday, a slight chance of rain in the morning, highs in the upper 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU College of Fine Arts with Actors Shakespeare Project, presenting Let the Right One In at Booth Theater, 
More at bu.edu slash CFA. To fight rising temperatures, a few Massachusetts communities are beginning to think about what's under their feet. The reason that our cities are hot is because we have so much pavement. Some places are trying to cool off by removing pavement, others by turning black asphalt a lighter gray. Our goal is to make the pavement hold less of the heat from the sun and reflect it back into the atmosphere. Our story tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Early voting has started in some states. Coming up, we hear from voters in North Carolina about what's getting them to the ballot box. And some experts say wild horses could help prevent wildfires out west. How? We have the answers. Plus, a new study found that people who have a wide range of social ties, both casual and intimate, are happier. Next time you're at the grocery store, strike up a conversation with the cashier. Maybe that will help, you know, maybe kind of enriching your your social portfolio in small ways like that could be really beneficial. It's Sunday, October 23rd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. A Russian military plane has crashed into a two-story building in Siberia. The governor there says two pilots were killed. NPR's Charles Maines reports on the crash from Moscow. Russian authorities say the pilots were conducting a test flight in an Su-30 fighter jet when it crashed into a building in the Siberian capital city of Irkutsk. Witness video online appeared to show the plane out of control and barely nose first towards the ground in the seconds before impact. Firefighters responded to the scene and authorities say they've launched a criminal investigation. Meanwhile, Russia's investigative committee issued a statement saying the plane was not carrying any weapon systems. The incident comes just days after another military jet crashed into an apartment building in southern Russia during a training exercise with weapons on board, killing more than a dozen people in their homes. Charles Maine's NPR News, Moscow. The group of seven nations is condemning Russia's kidnapping of the top Ukrainian officials who run the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the global leaders also calling for the immediate return of full control of the facility to Ukraine. The group of the world's wealthiest democracies said it was strongly concerned by the serious threat posed to the safety and security of the nuclear facility, its staff, and the region. The leader said the kidnapping of the plant's leadership prevented key personnel from handling indispensable functions. In a statement, they wrote, quote, we strongly reject these reckless, cruel, and dangerous acts and demand the immediate release of those detained. The Zaporizhia facility is the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Russian forces captured the plant this spring. The leaders added that they will never recognize the Russian Federation's attempted illegal annexations in Ukraine. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, 
Dnipro, Ukraine. In his nightly video address, President Volodymyr Zelensky rallied Ukrainians in the face of Russian airstrikes on the country's energy infrastructure, saying the attacks will not break Ukraine's determination to resist. Zelensky said the attacks were on a wide scale and have caused blackouts in several regions. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is threatening the Russian hold on the city of Kherson. Russian occupation authorities there ordered civilians to get out of there this weekend. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has uh, officially secured a third term as head of the ruling Communist Party, cementing his place as China's leader. The party also unveiled a new lineup of its most elite decision-making body, as NPR's Emily Fang reports. By retiring former officials and packing the new committee with longtime allies, Xi has ensured he has a complete control over the party and thus the country. She also gave a muscular speech vowing to defend Chinese interests. He warned the country was embarking on, quote, a long journey as China faces increasing headwinds from the U.S. and its allies. And he committed to keeping the party strong, so it remained, quote, the backbone of Chinese society. Yeah, and you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Roxbury residents are calling on Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's office to do more to clean up Clifford Park. Last week, during youth football practice, a nine-year-old boy was pricked by a used needle in the park. Residents say drug use in the nearby Mass and Cass area is spilling into their neighborhood. WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports. There you go. Right there. Next to the barrel, not in it. On a sunny Saturday morning, Marla Smith finds a needle under some leaves. She lives behind Clifford Park and has been coming here three to five times a week for the last three years to clean it up. She says she supports helping people struggling with addiction, but she's frustrated. And I'm not opposed to harm reduction. Actually, I think it's helpful, but it's not contained up at Mass and Cass. It spreads out here. And so what helps one person stay safe creates a danger for, you know, a nine-year-old kid who's maybe not looking for a needle because he shouldn't have to be in a park. Smith wants increased police presence in the area and thinks the state needs to partner with the city to find longer-term solutions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. A woman is expected to fully recover after being exposed to carbon monoxide at an ice rink in Billerica. The Boston Globe reports the 52-year-old suffered from dizziness and a headache while at the Hellenborg Ice Pavilion Friday night. The building was evacuated. No one else was affected. Officials say they think the leak was caused by a faulty part of the rink's chiller. It will cost you more next year to take a ferry to Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. The Steamship Authority approved increases to nearly all fares for 2023. Starting January 3rd, a one-way ticket from Woods Hole or Hyannis to the Vineyard will cost $10. A one-way trip to Nantucket will cost $20.50. It's 53 degrees in Boston. Some rain arriving mainly late in the day. Highs in the upper 50s today. Rain tonight, a chance of some thunderstorms. Lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, some showers likely, a chance of thunderstorms. Monday's highs in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ProQuest, whose website, Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S., curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com slash go slash black freedom.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The midterm election wraps up in just about two weeks, and the turnout has been high in some of the states that have early voting. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is in North Carolina talking to early voters in the suburbs around Raleigh, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. So, Tam, what brought you to North Carolina in the neck of the woods of my hometown, Durham, so Raleigh is very close by? Indeed. Uh, So I was looking for a competitive house race uh, where I could get a sense of the mood of the country, and there just aren't that many of them. North Carolina 13, though, is competitive. It was drawn to be competitive. As you say, it's in the suburbs of Raleigh and some more rural counties. Um, And there's early voting here. So I spent several hours standing outside of polling locations talking to people after they finished voting. And one thing that really stood out is the polarization, even among voters who are registered with no party preference. Uh, Take Jim Miller. I'm a solidly independent voter. And I have to say, in the past, mostly I have voted Republican, but I don't know if I could ever send another Republican to Washington again. So he cited election denial after 2020 as a driving factor. Then there was Darlene Royal, who named several Republicans, no longer in office, who she respects. I'm a registered independent, and I've been able to vote both sides in the past, but after all the stuff that's gone on, I just can't see myself even swinging towards Republicans because of the, all the misinformation. Then I interviewed Tony Vance Quake. He's a Republican. We used to select who the best candidate was based on the issues. Now I think it's time just to wipe out the wrong side, and then once those are wiped out, then start going out to the bad, bad ones on our side. We talk a lot about polarization, but this is not an academic concept. It is very real, and it was very much on display in my conversations with voters and the distrust that they have for the other party, you know, the grave concerns that they have about the state of the country, and uh, their total and complete disagreement about who's to blame for it. Wow, wiping out the other side. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the the voter for the voters who told you they are voting for Democrats, what seems to be their key motivation? Yeah, several mentioned education and the economy. Some talked about the state of democracy, but I think every single one mentioned abortion and reproductive rights, like Marcy Rogers. The economy is a big one, but also abortion, very big one. I have daughters and granddaughters. So that has been a big one for me, to just have our say as far as women's rights. Two years ago, four years ago, before the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, she said abortion wasn't an issue that drove her to vote. Now it is. Darlene Royal, who we heard from before, put it this way. Like somebody else says, the economy eventually will correct itself. Women's rights are not going to correct itself. And Democratic candidates all over the country are counting on this being a motivating issue for their voters, uh, because otherwise all of the all of the uh, historical precedent works against them. Here in North Carolina, abortion access is less restrictive than other southern states, um, and there's a Democratic governor who could veto a ban. But Democrats are extremely motivated to make sure that Republicans don't get a supermajority in the state legislature. And, and what about those voting for Republicans? Well, Republican voters I spoke to think Joe Biden is destroying America. I heard that again and again. They think he's hurt the economy, uh, that he's taken the country in a bad direction. Um, and, and they consistently bring up the economy and inflation. Christopher Girardi told me that on abortion, it should be between a woman and her doctor, but that that issue is not influencing his vote. He said it's all about the economy. Food is outrageous. 
now. We only spend $50 a week for food for the family. Now I'm up to $80 a week for food for the family. Economy is a big thing now. We're going downhill now. I don't know if you realize two years ago, the economy was roaring. It was great. People took home more money. Everything was better. So, Tam, you know, uh, in the about 30 seconds we have left, former President Trump continues to loom over national politics. He was subpoenaed Friday by the House January 6th committee. Is he a factor for the people you've been talking to? Well, the Democratic voters I spoke to blamed him for the divisions in the country, but they also see the issues as having grown beyond him. I asked every Republican I spoke to whether they think Trump should run again, and there were a lot of long pauses. Some said no, he was too divisive or proved that he couldn't win. Others did want him to run again, uh, but uh, I, I also got a lot of awkward pauses when I asked whether Biden should run again when I talked to Democrats. That's NPR's White House correspondent, Tamara Keith. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The stakes in Ukraine continue to ratchet up. So too does the rhetoric from the leaders at the center of the conflict, Presidents Zelensky and Putin. To see how the information battle is playing out, let's turn to Nina Jenkowitz. She's with the Center for Information Resilience and has long studied the intersection of democracy and technology in Eastern and Central Europe. Good morning, Nina. Good morning, Aisha. Great to be with you. So let's start with President Zelensky. You know, he forged into this space really from the outset of the war and became this international figure, basically giving nightly addresses. How is he using these addresses, especially when you're thinking about a domestic audience? Yeah, so Zelensky has been a really interesting figure in Ukraine. Since he was elected in 2019, you know, there was a lot of skepticism about him at the outset. He has this background in entertainment, but he's really brought those entertainment chops to bear in communicating with his people since the start of the full-scale invasion on February 24th. As you said, he's doing these very regular, almost nightly addresses that really evoke Churchill or perhaps FDR's fireside chats. He talks about gains that the Ukrainian army has made in the past 24 hours. He gives critical information about bomb shelters and different intelligence. And I think most importantly, he rallies the public around Ukraine. And with Zelensky, he's also trying to keep Ukraine front and center internationally, right? Here's his speech that was played before the UN General Assembly last month. A crime has been committed against Ukraine, and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. The crime was committed against the lives of our people. And that's what he was trying to do in this speech, right? Yeah, absolutely. Over and over again, not only at the UN General Assembly, but in front of Congress, in front of various parliaments around the world, even at things like, you know, film festivals and award ceremonies, Zelensky has really communicated this authentic, emotional, human image that's frankly based in fact. You mean when he's saying that there are crimes that have been committed to us, obviously the invasion, but also atrocities and other things are being committed against Ukraine, that there are facts to back that up? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that Russia dropped missiles, for instance, on Kiev that hit a playground and a civilian footbridge recently. We know that Russia is targeting civilian infrastructure. And frankly, we know that Russia has been instituting a fairly draconian regime in these occupied territories where it held sham referenda recently. We know all of this through open source research. It's not anything that Russia can kind of explain away. We have the receipts, so to speak. 
So by contrast, we have the example of President Putin. At a recent rally he held in Red Square after the illegal annexation of four regions in Ukraine. Let's listen to a bit and have you talk to us out of the clip. Gosh, there's so much to unpack in that one sentence there. So Putin is saying that people came to the referendum to be with their historical nation of Russia. People didn't come by choice to that referendum. The folks who voted in that referendum are doing so out of duress, not to mention that this whole kind of narrative about Ukraine being one nation historically with Russia is part of Russian propaganda. And this idea of two brotherly nations or of one nation that is part of Russia is is frankly used to try to justify this unjust war that Putin has been waging that has killed not only thousands of Ukrainians, but thousands of Russians that have been sent to the front as well. You talked about the way Zelensky presents himself. How does Putin present himself to his public? Yeah, the two images could not be farther apart, in my opinion, Aisha. At the beginning of this conflict, we saw Putin sitting next to a desk looking quite slovenly, actually leaning back in a chair with his tie askew, giving these meandering addresses that went very deep into kind of the minutiae of this propagandistic narrative. And then we see this very calculated image also of of these big rallies in Red Square, uh, meetings that look very staged between him and his main generals or his advisors. It couldn't be any more different than that authentic image, that kind of very human image that Zelensky is projecting. Is there a clear winner and loser in all of this when it comes to the messaging or the way the messaging is received? Or is that not the way to characterize it? Well, I think especially when you look back at when Russia first illegally annexed Crimea and invaded the Donbass region of Ukraine in 2014, Ukraine's messaging has absolutely come a very, very long way. We used to have these extremely kind of post-Soviet bureaucratic messages that didn't really resonate with not only Ukrainians, but didn't really resonate with the international community. And I think what we've seen over the past eight months is a, a totally different messaging style from the Zelensky administration and from Ukraine. And that's shown in and the continued support that we see for the Ukrainian population. You know, I've seen Ukrainian flags as far away as Boise, Idaho. We see those flags everywhere. We see kind of the support for Ukraine and the plight of its people. And I think that speaks to the resonance that Zelensky's message has had throughout the world. That's Nina Jankowitz. Her book is How to Lose the Information War. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, you'll hear about a new bookstore in Kentucky specializing in horror novels. That's coming up on Weekend Edition. The Boston Book Festival kicks off this Friday, October 28th, and runs through Saturday, October 29th. WBUR hosts will be there. For details, go to wbur.org events.
It is 54 degrees in Boston, some rain mainly late in the day, and highs today in the upper 50s. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's deeply funny show at the Paramount Theater, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Former President Donald Trump has made his first public remarks since being served with a subpoena by the House January 6th committee. Speaking at a rally in Robstown, Texas last night, Trump suggested he'd receive a subpoena for just flying over a state controlled by Democrats. Authorities say the number of migrants stopped after illegally crossing the U.S.-Mexico border has hit a fiscal year record. Customs and Border Protection officials say that for the 12 months ending September 30th, migrants were stopped at the southern border nearly two 2.4 million times. And forecasters at the National Hurricane Center expect Hurricane Rosalind to weaken as it moves over land. Rosalind made landfall along Mexico's Pacific coast this morning as a dangerous Category 3 storm. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In rural Northern California, where naturalist William Simpson lives, wildfires are burning hotter and faster than ever before. This includes one fire that came close to his home four years ago. Governor Jerry Brown declaring a state of emergency for what's being called the Klamathon Fire. The Klamathon Fire, as it's called, erupted late this afternoon. near the A major firefight is on in Siskiyou County, where the Klamathon Fire has burned more than 33 square miles, marching across... That fire, like many western wildfires, was fueled largely by overgrown grass and brush. Simpson says there's a solution for taming these fires involving wild horses. Stephanie O'Neill has this report. William Simpson describes the 2018 wildfire that burned near his cabin for nine days. The fire just came right up over that ridge, burned all the trees, destroyed all that conifer forest up there. But despite ferocious winds that sent flames his way, Simpson's property didn't burn. And he credits the community's Wild Horse Fire Brigade. It started getting into the area where our local herd of wild horses had reduced the fuel. Large areas that were grazed open became safe zones for uh, Cal Fire personnel and equipment that were stationed in front of the fire. This local herd has become the collective poster child for Simpson's proposal to rewild horses rounded up by the Bureau of Land Management as part of its wild horse management strategy. A 1971 act of Congress intended to protect America's wild horses and burros puts the agency in charge of them. And when the BLM determines there's too many, it can order helicopter roundups. 
Numerous videos found online show the low-flying helicopters swooping down on frightened wild horses, chasing them at full speed into traps set on the range. Lawyer Kelsey Stangaby authored a law review article in 2017 critical of the BLM's roundup and management practices. Now they're all piled in there together and they're fighting the fence lines, they're jumping the fence lines. Dramatic, visually horrific for the animal. Horses get injured, some die. The BLM says those numbers are small and unavoidable. And they point to their adoption program that helps to find some of the horses' new homes. But thousands of others, about 58,000 right now, live out their lives in BLM holding pens, costing U.S. taxpayers millions in feed and care. And Simpson says that makes no sense. Keeping horses out of the wilderness and in confinement is like putting the fire department in jail during fire season. <laughs> Simpson and his partner Michelle live on the edge of the Soda Mountain Wilderness area. You get there with GPS coordinates that take my trusty wingman, Tom Pattison, and me from miles along a remote mountain road to a man in a cowboy hat waiting for us on his ATV. We found the right guy. Yeah. Did you see any horses coming up? We did. Yeah, they're kind of spread out at this time of the year. The landscape here looks like something out of a Hollywood Western. It's arid with mostly juniper and oak trees, some conifers, all of it home to about 90 free roaming horses. All right, so just follow me on. Okay. Up. Okay. We head up a steep dirt driveway, past more than a dozen horses gathered at the top of the hill. They watch as Simpson hops off the ATV, unlocks a metal gate, and waves us through. We park near his cabin on a hill overlooking a large reservoir. To the west, we have the Six Rivers National Forest. If we look to the south, you can see the top of Mount Shasta right there. Oh, and yeah, okay. Then to the north, we have Oregon, just two miles away. Simpson lives among and studies these horses much in the same way primatologist Jane Goodall embedded herself with the chimpanzees she studied in Africa. Hey, baby, you going to come over and see us? Huh? He's familiar with each horse, their personality, their age, and their all-important status within the herd. This guy down here, that's the stallion. We named him Mystic. This is his uh, lead mare. And then here comes Canny Man, who thinks he's a tough boy. <laughs> the herd trusts Simpson, and that's provided him this rare, up-close access to their nuanced behaviors, all documented in his years-long study of wild horses in the U.S. wilderness area. This morning they were way up by those rocks, crazy. Yeah. So where do they live? Way up in those mountains up there? They, they go everywhere here. They can be in Oregon in an hour. The horses tread lightly out here, Simpson says, following the game trails deer and elk use, trimming highly flammable grass and brush along the way. About five and a half tons of it per horse per year. Then, added bonus, unlike non-native cows, the horses reseed what they eat, including native and endangered plants. Here's a horse dropping, and um, you open it up, and you can see they're like little compost balls with seeds in it. The horses also help fireproof trees they use for cover. Now this juniper, I'm noticing, did they break branches off yeah. that? They hang around these trees and they scratch and then they break off the limbs. You can see that one down there, a lot of limbs are busted off. It's these so-called ladder fuels that send grass and brush fueled fires into fragile forest canopies where they rapidly spread. But in a trimmed landscape, fire burns low and slow, just like nature intended. Deer once did a lot of that clearing, but habitat loss and other factors have decimated western deer populations. In California, their numbers have shrunk by 80% since the 1960s. Those deer were grazing 3 million tons of annual grass and brush. That's a lot of fire fuel. 
Studies show the loss of large-bodied plant eaters linked to this era of destructive mega-wildfires. Going back a million years, there wasn't catastrophic fire in North America, ever. That is a brand new paradigm since we lost large-body herbivores that control grass and brush. He says for wild horses to help fill the deer void requires their relocation, and in the case of captive horses, their rewilding, into these wilderness areas most threatened by destructive wildfires. Then, instead of costing taxpayers millions in captivity, each horse would provide $72,000 worth of brush clearing work over its lifetime, according to his calculations. And if fewer or less destructive fires result, Simpson says, that value goes way up. In California in 2018, I think we had $180 billion in losses. If we affected that just by about 2 or 3%, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in additional savings on top of the 72000 But the BLM doesn't share Simpson's enthusiasm. In an email to NPR, the agency says it has a number of ecological concerns, among them that despite the existence of mountain lions, bears, and other predators in these wilderness areas, rewilded horses nevertheless might overpopulate and could cause harm to the wilderness ecosystem. Still, Simpson's plan is intriguing fire-weary elected officials on both sides of the California-Oregon border, as well as scientists like Julie Murphy. She's an Arizona State University professor of wildlife management and biological ethics. To me, that seems like a win-win solution. Murphy studies wild horses and now volunteers as a board member for Simpson's nonprofit. She points to recent evidence, including new DNA sequencing, that links the modern horse to those that originated here about 1.7 million years ago. We know now that horses have evolved on the North American continent. They should be considered native. But she does acknowledge that unintended consequences can happen even when species are reintroduced to lands they once roamed. But with rigorous monitoring and real-time adjustments in the field, she supports William Simpson's call for a Wild Horse Fire Brigade pilot program in the American West before more wilderness areas, nearby communities, and lives are forever lost. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie O'Neill in Siskiyou County, California. Would Eleanor Rigby and Father McKenzie have been happier together? Probably so. But would they have been even more happy if they also went to the pub or a football match? That's the question Hannah Collins asked. She's an author of a new study out of the Harvard Business School looking at relational diversity. And she joins us now. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So relational diversity, a lot of people may not know exactly what that means, but it's supposed to be a mix of strong and weak relational ties. Can you tell us what that means and how you distinguish one type of relationship from another? Absolutely. So it's a very good question. I will admit we made the term up okay. as we were writing the paper. So no worries if you don't know what it means. Relational diversity has two elements. So one is what we call richness. And this is the total number of relationship categories that you talk to. So what we mean by relationship category, we mean your parent, your sister, your brother, your friend, your best friend, your acquaintance, a stranger, your romantic partner, anything like that. And the second element of this, of this relational diversity is evenness. So this is kind of, we think about this as the relative evenness with which you talk to people across those categories. So you could imagine in a day you mostly talk to your colleagues and then maybe you kind of once or twice talk to your friend. 
Um, so that's not very even, but if you, you know, have a few conversations with colleagues, a few with friends, a few with a romantic partner, a couple of chats with strangers, you know, that that's going to be more even across these categories. So there's kind of those two aspects, the richness and the evenness of people's social portfolios. And how do you measure those ties and like the happiness associated with them? So a lot of this is, you know, big data sets that are kind of publicly available. So one comes from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, you know, they while they're doing their census data collection, they'll actually randomly select people and they'll ask them if they're willing to do an extra survey. And in this extra survey, they'll essentially ask them to break down their day yesterday from when they wake up to when they went to sleep and just tell them what they did. You know, what were you doing while you were doing that? Who were you talking to? How did you feel? Things like that. Um, another kind of source of data we look at is, is data collected by the World Health Organization, and they do a very similar thing. And so we get these very rich data sets about what people are doing, who they're interacting with, how they're feeling, and their general well-being as well. Okay. And so what did you find? Yeah, well, it's pretty simple, really. We basically find that the more relationally diverse people's social portfolios were. So the more, you know, number of relationship categories they talk to in a day and the the more even their conversations are across those categories, you know, the happier they are. And we find this in a large sample across many countries. And the idea here is essentially that we have a lot of different relationships in our lives and there's a lot of research showing that humans are inherently social beings and social connection is a key factor in our health. And then there's a lot of kind of evidence that close ties are important, but weak ties are also important. And so what we find is essentially it's, it's about this mix, you know, it's about kind of connecting with people who are close to you, who are maybe less close to you, who connect you with other people who provide different kinds of support. Essentially, the idea is that the more diverse your social portfolio, the happier you are and the higher your well-being. So, I mean, I guess thinking of it that way, if your partner is your best friend and your only friend, your well-being may not be that good, right? Yeah, I think it, it, it's a good point. I think it definitely differs for a lot of people. But, you know, maybe next time you're at the grocery store, strike up a conversation with the cashier. Maybe that will help, you know, maybe okay. kind of enriching your, your social portfolio in small ways like that could be really beneficial, or at least I encourage you to try it. <laughs> so, I mean, when you see this association, though, you know, we always talk about correlation versus causation. Could it be that people who are happy do more things and are more likely to interact with someone because they're happy? And if you're not happy, you don't really want to deal with anyone. Yeah, that's an amazing question. Thank you for asking. We do have one kind of set of data where we follow people over time. So we have like weeks of their social portfolios and what they're doing in their social lives and their daily reports of well-being. And we're able to kind of do some lagged analyses where we essentially look at, you know, was your diversity of your social portfolio last week predictive of your well-being this week? controlling for everything you've done this week. And we do find that, yes, you know, the more relationally diverse your interactions were last week, the happier you are this week, even when we control for your, you know, who you talk to this week and everything you've done. And so it does suggest some element of causation here from one week to the next. But I think this is a totally fair point. Um, I think that a lot of our data is correlational. And hopefully, you know, in the future, we can send people into the world and to enrich their social lives and see what happens. Okay. And so I'm curious about this. Has working on this changed your behavior? Did this make you want to talk to that person at the grocery store, at the bus stop or wherever um, and do more of that? Totally. I would say, yes, it really has changed how I think about 
my own social lives. I'm, I'm definitely an introvert. I spend a lot of time uh, with my cat. And so I do think I've taken this to heart. You know, I joined like an adult guitar class because I was like, I'll see people and I'll chat with them and that will be nice. You know, they don't have to be my best friends, but at least they're acquaintances and they'll kind of add this diversity to my social life. And I really, um, I've tried to take this to heart for sure. That's Hannah Collins, a graduate student at Harvard University and author of a new study on relational diversity and well-being. Hannah Collins, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Voting for the Grammy Awards is just getting started, and there's already drama. That's Nicki Minaj's hit, Super Freaky Girl. She says it's been categorized as pop by the Recording Academy, even though she entered the song in the rap categories. Let's just say Minaj has taken to social media to talk about it. (laughs) Maybe do a little more than talk. And Stephen Thompson is here from NPR Music to talk to (laughs) us about it. Welcome to the show, Stephen. It is great to be here. So what do we know about this Grammy category controversy? So Nicki Minaj submitted this song, which is a rap song, into the rap categories because that's where she felt she belonged and she felt that that's where she had the best chance to win her first Grammy. Believe it or not, she has never won a Grammy. And so she was angry when it came back in pop categories, especially since the rapper Lotto has a song called Big Energy, which landed in the rap categories. So let's actually hear a little bit of uh, of Big Energy. I could tell you got big, big energy. It ain't too many of them that can handle me. But I might let you try it out the Hennessy. And you hear those songs, like they're very similarly constructed. They are rap songs, they're reinterpolating very familiar hooks. And Nicki Minaj asked the question on Twitter: why is Lotto's song? a rap song and my song is a pop song. And this ended up being a huge beef between the two artists where they were hurling insults at each other. But the larger point, I think, is a really valid one. And I mean, this isn't new, right? Like, there have been issues in the past over how the Grammys have decided to categorize things, right? Yeah, I mean, you think about all sorts of artists that are straddling different genres. You know, Doja Cat is pop, but also R&B, but also hip-hop. Where do you put her music? You know, Casey Musgraves is country, but also folk, but also Americana, but also pop. What category do you put her in? And so these debates come up almost every year. And I mean, part of this is because there's so much crossover in music, as you're pointing out. There's also like racial issues as there is mm-hmm. with everything, whereas, you know, a black person may be considered R&B or something like that, whereas even though they're making the same music that in another context mm-hmm. would be considered pop. Like there's a lot of things that go into this that can also make the Grammy seem a bit out of touch, too, right? 
Yeah, and the Grammys have a long history of mishandling rap music in particular. You have much, much poppier songs being rewarded over songs that have a, a lot more, uh, I, I hate to say credibility, but, you know, you had the year that Macklemore swept the rap categories, beating out Kendrick Lamar. As recently as, you know, 2017, you had Drake's Hotline Bling kind of doing well in the rap categories when he himself considers it a pop song. And so you have artists like The Weeknd and Drake who are boycotting the Grammys and not even submitting their work for consideration for nomination. Bottom line, Stephen, the Grammys are something that artists get very worked up over, Mm -hmm. but they don't get high ratings for people watching them. And some (laughs) people would argue, are they even relevant in this day and age? Well, I think relevance, you know, depends on what you're talking about, right? But it has enormous outsized impact on artists' career. If you think about the obituary of any musician who dies, if they've won Grammys, that's in the first sentence of their obituary. It bestows kind of a shorthand of credibility. And if you're an artist who wants like a checkmark of credibility, the Grammys are a really quick way to get that. That's Stephen Thompson of NPR Music. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. An independent investigation has found that an incident at the YMCA in West Barnstable this month followed a failure by the Y to adhere to industry standards when treating its swimming pool. Children swimming in the pool became ill when a combination of chemicals became toxic. Seven children were sent to the hospital. The Massachusetts Teachers Association says teachers in Haverhill have ratified a new contract with 99% voting in favor of the pact. The Haverhill School Committee is scheduled to vote on it this coming Thursday. Schools were closed this past Monday through Thursday while the teachers went on strike. In sports, this is an off day for the Bruins and the Celtics. Tomorrow night, the Celtics are in Chicago, and tomorrow night at Gillette, the Patriots host the Bears. It is 54 degrees in Boston, rain today, mainly late in the day, and highs in the upper 50s. Rain tonight with a chance of thunderstorms. Tomorrow, some showers likely, a chance of thunderstorms. Monday's highs in the low 60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Susan Laurie Parks on her groundbreaking play, Top Dog, Underdog. I love a good, black, joyous story, and I think Top Dog is one, but I'm not afraid of the painful places, too. Susan Laurie Parks, next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. LindaMoodBell.com slash NPR.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So I hear you're at a very special event this week, and we are going all the way over the airways to Poland. That's right. I am at the World Puzzle Championship. There are 197 contestants from about 30 countries. All the puzzles are logic, so there's no word puzzles. Everyone can compete equally, no matter what their language. And uh, it just finished as we're talking. And Americans finished second and eighth out of 197. Not bad. And the U.S. team finished second behind Japan. And Will, please remind us of last week's challenge. Yes, it came from listener David Edelheit of Oyster Bay, New York. I said, think of a pair of two-syllable words that are pronounced the same, except one is accented on the first syllable and the other is accented on the second. And the word that's accented on the first syllable is associated with confrontation, while the word that's accented on the second syllable is associated with cooperation. What words are these? Well, the intended answer was conquer and concur, Um, We also had a a second answer I thought was pretty darn good, converse and converse. Uh, You can justify both of those. We also got differ and defer, but uh, I didn't think the first syllables of diff and d were the same. So uh, we had two good answers. We had a lot of answers that were close, but not quite right. So this this was a toughie for y'all. Coming out on top, though, is our lucky winner, Eric Eklund of Santa Cruz, California. Congratulations, Eric, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So how long have you been playing the puzzle, Eric? We've been NPR listeners for about five years, and uh, we look forward to the Sunday puzzle every week. And, And so what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I'm an oral surgeon by profession, so that keeps me pretty busy. Um, But we do a lot of outdoor activities like cycling. We like to go see live music, things like that. Since you're doing surgery, I know you're ready to play the puzzle, right? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Okay, take it away, Will. All right, Eric and Aisha, I'm going to give you some six-letter words. For each one, change one consonant to a vowel to make a new word. For example, if I said defect, D-E-F-E-C-T, you would say defeat, changing the C to an A. It's always a consonant to a vowel. And your first one is biking, B-I-K-I-N-G. Biking. Bikini? Nice one. Here's your next one. Strong, S-T-R-O-N-G. Strong. I keep wanting to change a vowel, but we want to go consonant to vowel. Change the T. Oh, change the T. Okay. Sarong? Sarong, yeah. Okay. Simple. S-I-M-P-L-E. This one should be simple. (laughs) Let me see. Simple. Simile. Simile, good job. Salmon, as in the fish. consonants. Try changing the M. Oh, 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 I got it. It's, it's where, if you are a cowboy, where you go to oh, the saloon, kick off some saloon, steam. Two O's, okay. You go to the saloon. Thank you Good for one, the Aisha. <laughs> uh, your next one is zither, Z-I-T-H-E-R, as in the musical instrument. Zither, 
either. Yes, either or either, yes. Staunch, S-T-A-N-C-H, as in to staunch a wound. Staunch. Stance, change the H to an E. Stance. And your last one is to use that same word, stance, S-T-A-N-C-E, and get a new answer. Oh. Um, T to an E, seance? Seance, you got it. Good job. That was great. Like, you was getting that air. <laughs> well, really... thank you. You know, you play this every Sunday at home, and it's so easy, and then you're on, on the spot, and it's a lot different, <laughs> but this was very fun. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org puzzle. And Eric, what member station do you listen to? 90.3 KAZU in Seaside, California. That's Eric Eklund of Santa Cruz, California. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you for having me. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yeah, it comes from Weihua Huang of San Jose, California. He's four-time champion of the World Puzzle Championship, and he's here with me in Krakow. And he notes that it's unusual for a multi-word movie title to consist entirely of words starting with vowels, none of which are the article A or the pronoun I. And here's the puzzle. Can you name a popular movie with a five-word title with word lengths 10, 10, 3, 2, 4, all of which start with vowels? So that's the puzzle. Think of a popular movie with a five-word title, word lengths 10, 10, 3, 2, 4. All the words start with vowels. What movie is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, October 27th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you, Aisha. down the side of a new bookstore in Louisville, Kentucky, specializing in eerie, scary, hair-raising novels that seem to escape attention. The indie horror scene is growing so much right now, and people are putting out really good books, but it's really hard to find those books on a shelf. That's why Jenny Kiefer opened Butcher Cabin Books. The store got a huge welcome from locals when it opened earlier this month. There was a line down the block and around the corner for the opening day. It was pretty wild. Kiefer opened up the bookshop with her mom, Martha, the person she credits for her early love of scary books. When I was growing up, she would read to me like scary stories to tell in the dark, and then I would pick up other horror books like Goosebumps and sort of graduated from there. Today, some of her favorite horror books include classics like Rosemary's Baby and The Shining. I really love the creativity that goes into horror books. Thinking about how you could scare someone and trying to be creative with that. Or also thinking about how you can take reality and twist it a little bit to make it unsettling or creepy. We asked Kiefer as a bookstore owner and horror lover to give us a couple of recommendations for what to read during this spooky season. 
there's a book called Children of Chicago by Cynthia Paleo that's kind of like a gritty and gruesome retelling of the Pied Piper. And for kids? Neil Gaiman has books like Coraline and The Graveyard Book. There's a really popular series called Clown in a Cornfield, which might be a little bit upper YA. For more modern books, one of my recent favorites is We Need to Do Something by Max Booth, which is a very wild ride. It's hard to really describe it without giving some of it away. And of course, Jenny Kiefer's own novel, That Wretched Valley, when it comes out in 2024. From one horror lover to another, may this Halloween bring you some delightfully haunting good reads. Hello, hello. Are you alright? Keeping occupied. Are you safe? Are you sound? That's how Charlotte Dos Santos greets you in her new album called Morpho. The Brazilian Norwegian singer songwriter blends themes of relationships and identity with sounds of jazz and bossa nova rhythms. Charlotte Dos Santos joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So can you start by telling us what morpho means literally and, and what it means to you? So morpho stems from the butterfly morpho didius, which is that bright iridescent blue butterfly that you find in the Amazon and some other places in Latin America. So it's kind of native to the, the tropical forests of um, Brazil particularly, so it's kind of a nod to my Brazilian heritage. Let's listen to the song Away From You. So especially when you get to that hook, I mean, and it's a, it's all about a love song, who you fiending yes. for, who you own, the only one you want. So tell me about what space you were when you were writing that. I mean, most of the album was actually written during um, lockdown. So it's kind of been a compilation of different processes and different writing times in my life. But for this song, it was just really kind of what I was doing that day. I just remember being with my partner and we were biking and I was like, you know, I want to make something that's kind of lighthearted and funny and cute and kind of like try a new approach to writing music and being more playful with it than maybe I have in the past. Obviously, during lockdown, everything was very, very heavy. Yeah. Was it almost like an escape or wanting to give people a way to not have to feel so heavy all the time to get some lightness in their life? Definitely, because I remember the album itself initially was supposed to be called Metamorphosis. And then I ended up scratching the song called Metamorphosis and the album kind of started morphing into something else and that's kind of how I landed on the name Morpho so I wanted you know the music to be a little more happy and light I think 
as a contrast to everything that was going on in the world, subconsciously, if anything, uh, me trying to be like, okay, I have to, <laughs> have to put some lightness in, in my days. I mean, that's a, that's a big decision to kind of scrap what you were working on and kind of start all over. What was the thing that made you say, okay, I got to do something different? Honestly, it sounds like a hard thing to do, but it was just really necessary because this album was really taking shape so well and it was coming together just kind of perfectly, but it definitely was different than what I initially had thought was going to kind of come out. I still feel like I kept true to what I needed to say and still bring forward the message of transformation. We mentioned um, that uh, one of the big themes on this album is identity, and that really comes through in this song, Filia do Sol. Let's listen to a little bit of it. The sunrise across the far east She feels the wind like a gentle breeze She tickles her skin and the hair that she got from her I'm hearing your Afro-Brazilian roots here. Can you tell me about what you were exploring in the song? For me, I just wanted to have the elements that really feels like Brazil to me. And being Afro-Brazilian, you know, obviously Brazil has a lot of Afro influence and the music and the drumming and everything. So it kind of it was a natural thing to add these elements into the to the music and it's kind of based off of a song that I really like by a Brazilian artist called Edu Lobo and this song is really called which means uh, the whip is beating so it was kind of like a, a song that had this chant that I wanted to make a twist on and kind of reclaim it in a way. You grew up in Norway. Um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, being Afro-Brazilian, like, were you able to find community to know more about Brazil and your roots there? Well, not necessarily. I think it was kind of a, a lonely experience, but I, I had music and my father is, he lives in Norway as well with me. so. I, you know, learned through him and I always had him as like kind of my, what should I say, my library and, you know, he was kind of the source for me to, to learn about Brazil because I didn't go there a lot when I was growing up. But I think music really helped for me to figure out what is Brazil to me and what does it mean. You've lived in so many places. You have all these different relationships to different types of music. So how do you try to tie all of that together in in this album? I think all experiences kind of help shape us, you know, become who we are. And sometimes it's just subconsciously. And I kind of just want to let things flow and not think too much when I write music and when I produce. So I'm very visceral. Everything kind of happens in my head and I hear things. And I think what I've learned and experienced in my life is kind of, it just naturally, it comes out in my music. Um, and then kind of listening to a lot of different music from all over the world. I don't really have a no genre. I just, whatever it is, as long as I find connection to it, it's, it can be anything really. 
That's Charlotte Dos Santos. Her new album is Morpho. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Time to wake up bright and shine. Let me hear what's on your mind. I'll do your hair, I'll do your makeup. Talk to you, make you feel better. Touch my panel. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO, dedicated to bringing patient engagement and shared decision-making to the clinician-patient conversation with its Clinical Decisions Suite. Learn more at clinicaldecisions.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 54 degrees in Boston with some rain in store today. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, a sharp October chill in U.S.-China relations, starting with hostile talk from the Biden White House about Taiwan, technology, and trade. Who's looking for new enemies? Or a grand theory to explain a global headache. What's driving our mood next on Open Source? Today at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.